You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. We got a story about family rivalry today. Road trip is taking us through some drama. Genesis chapter 4. God just told Adam and Eve that your offspring is going to destroy the one who just tried to destroy you. And so this is the next moment that happens in the story. And you can imagine how excited they are when it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. That part's exciting. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, I want you to see how dissed Abel just got. God says, I'm going to give you a baby, and that baby is going to destroy the one who did this. And the text says, now Adam knew his wife, like this moment of passion and excitement in the midst of hardship. Can I get a witness? It's going to be a long Sunday. Matt, we were just talking about this. Sometimes you got to play when things are going wrong. Come on. It's one of the ways we're defiant is by showing the enemy that we can have fun when things aren't fun. Somebody Pentecostal in here? Like, all right. I've acquired a man with the help of the Lord. And Abel, his brother, was born. It opens like that to let us all know that for the rest of this story, Abel has nothing to do with what we're supposed to learn. This story is being read to the Israelites who are in the wilderness. That's when they got the book. And there's nothing but contentions and rivalries and murmuring and grumbling. And God tells them this story. And in this story, Cain is introduced so abruptly and Abel is kind of thrown aside because Cain is the reason why the earth is the way it is. Why there's war and contention. And so God wants this story read to the Israelites in the wilderness to say, look at him. This is you, and here's how we can redeem and fix this. And so for the rest of the story, let Abel be Abel. We're Cain. We're Cain. And I know that's really encouraging and very happy for everybody to hear. But every good sermon will resolve itself in the gospel, and that's where we want to get to. But we need to travel some rocky ground first. So Adam and Eve knew each other. They got Cain and Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Nobody knows how Cain knew that God didn't regard that offering. It doesn't say. Some people think fire came down and consumed Abel's offering and didn't consume Cain's. Some think that Cain just developed this this idea over time that God is more happy with my brother than he is with me. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? I love how God always approaches things that he knows with questions. We really should do the same thing in our lives. Stop telling people what they did and ask them about it. You can all go home now. It's been, it's been a fun... The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Heavenly Father, we pray that this sermon, this message, would somehow, in all of its brokenness, Heavenly Father, that it would reach its way into the rivalries that we have going on in our lives. I pray, Heavenly Father, if there are rivalries within homes... Rivalries within families, rivalries within social networks, that this message would begin to break that down, that you would get us to the cross today, where rivalries stop, where contention cease, where the playing field is leveled. Pray, Heavenly Father, that any person in this room who's in the midst of a rivalry would not listen on behalf of the person they're rivaling but would truly listen with their own ear for their own heart for what you have to say to them. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. We can never forget that it's ordinary time. And ordinary time is the season in the church right after Pentecost, where Our new ordinary is now life in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Our new ordinary is life functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We can never forget who we are. We are people who at the end of all the Bible searching and all the liturgy and all the academic stuff, and all the serving, and all the hope initiative, and all of our missions, and all of the singles ministry, and all of Lyft, and all of 318, when all of that is done, if we are not people of the power of God, we have nothing. We need to be people of the power of God, and we need to pray on a daily basis that God would fill us as individuals and fill this house with his power. I'm going to lean on the gas pedal until I hear some people understanding that we need to be a house that's filled with the power of God. Otherwise, what else is going on? When Jesus, and I also want everyone to know that we are not Pentecostal because of Acts chapter 2. We were given our anointing to be Pentecostal in Acts chapter 2. But we're Pentecostal because Jesus was Pentecostal. Jesus walked around in the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing he did was independent from that power. So Jesus lived in a Pentecostal vocation. His life was Pentecostal. It was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we got what Jesus always has. When Jesus walked around, here's one thing we know. Evil knew exactly who he was. In Mark's gospel, evil is the first voice to actually call him the son of God. Evil knew Jesus before Peter did. Evil, knowing him, 
always said to him, if you are the son of God. Because evil knows us, but evil does not want us to know ourselves. Evil would be content with us living in all of the blessings and all of the resolutions and everything we've ever desired to do if we didn't know who we were. But here's what we know about Jesus. When Jesus is face to face with evil, he knows who evil is. When he's in the wilderness, and he, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus hears the voice that could easily sound like intercessory love from the Father, Jesus, I can feed you. Jesus, I can save you. Jesus, I can give you the kingdoms of the earth. See, we know too early that Jesus was with Satan. But if we didn't know that part, everything Satan said would sound a lot like God. I can feed you, I can save you, and I can give you the kingdoms I've promised you. And as Bonhoeffer said, because Jesus was walking around in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to discern the voice of evil in the midst of it sounding like the voice of intercessory love. So evil knew Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus knew how to discern the voice of whatever you want to call it, the devil, the world, the flesh, the voice that's not God, no matter what it is, is antichrist. And Jesus knew how to discern that within himself. We don't know if Jesus was physically seeing Satan. We don't know if this was all happening inside of his own mind. I don't think I've ever seen Satan, but I know he's been in between my ears a lot. We need to know this as we venture out into the story of Cain. Because everything that happens in this story happens when two people rightly decide that they're going to worship the Father. Cain and Abel both worship God. They both bring offerings consistent with the vocation that God gave them. Does not bother anybody about what happens in this story? That Cain brings to God fruit from the field that God told him to work. And his brother brings a lamb from the flock that God told him to keep. And God has regard for one and not for the other. One thing we have to see here before we look at anything else in this story is that worship worked. Because when you worship, you open up your life to encounter, exposure, and the possibility of renewal. At the cross, when we offer ourselves, we encounter him, we're exposed by him, and we have the opportunity to enter into him for renewal. Amen? That's what happens here on Sundays. When, when the Holy Spirit shows up like it did today, like he did today, i got to stop saying it. That's my personal pet peeve of myself. When he showed up today, we are encountering him, we are exposed by him, and we have the opportunity to be renewed by him when he shows up. This is why when you're in a season in your life where you really feel that you are on fire for God, where you really are offering yourself to him, where those seasons where we don't always have to beat ourselves up, like we get it right sometimes, amen? 
I feel like sometimes we kill ourselves in this room. Like, we get it right a lot of the time. And it's in those seasons where we're hot, where we're on fire, that we tend to say, man, the devil really attacks me in those seasons. And I'm going to say, maybe not. Maybe when we're really worshiping him, what happens is we encounter him, and he strips us of all of our facade. And we actually see what's real of us. And it feels like the enemy is attacking us. But God is actually revealing us to us. Because we don't know ourselves very well. When Peter denies Jesus, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. Bonhoeffer said Peter should have been talking about himself when he said that, not Jesus. We need to enter into worship so that we can know who we are. And odds are, if you're anything like me, <laughs> the minute you find out who you are, it feels like the enemy's attacking you. And you feel tempted and you feel pulled and you feel influenced with all these negative realities and it's because God is showing you you. So that he can say, see, Sin is crouching at the door for you, but you can still rule over it. Ian, can you throw up the, the, the fan clip now? Can that go on now? You started it pretty early there. Let's just start that whole thing over again from the top. The fan is on. Then there's a power outage, which we now showed everybody. Now watch what happens to the fan. That happens. Now run it one more time. Evil has power, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and here's what happens to evil. I don't want you to focus on the part where it stopped. I want you to focus on the part where when the power was pulled, evil still spun for a little while. That's why we don't defeat the enemy. He's already defeated. We resist him because he's slowing down. When Jesus, when, when Jesus, when God, when they say to Cain, sin is crouching out the door and you can rule over it. Notice in Genesis it says you must rule over it. But now because of the cross, he can say you can rule over it. Because I've pulled the plug on evil. It still exists. It's still spinning. Watch the news. Evil is still spinning, but its blades are slowing down. And we're supposed to resist it until it stops. We don't have to defeat it. We have to resist. And that's how we rule over it until the fan finally stops blowing. I just went to the bottom of my notes. So now we are just, we're flying along. We're flying along, whatever. Worship exposes. Cain's, Cain's offering we see in his reaction to God's critique that his offering was never really an offering, it was a transaction. When we give something to God and we don't feel that the giving is complete until he does something back, we did not offer anything, we made a transaction. It's like going into the deli, you'd be like, how much is the Mountain Dew? It's $2, here's $2, transaction. I give you two bucks, I got the Mountain Dew. What are some of the transactions that we do? I'm going to praise my way out of the situation. It's not an offering of praise. It's a transaction. I don't offer God my praise 
so that I get out of something. I offer him my praise because he's worthy of my praise in it or out of it. That's why I offer it to him. We don't, you've heard me say it before, but we don't praise so that we get out of stuff. We praise because Jesus is in stuff with us. That's why we praise. How about this one? I'm going to thank him in advance. What the heck does that even mean? I'm going to thank him in advance. Can you imagine, I already made a, I already made a sex joke at the beginning, so I can't make a second one. Can you imagine, I'm going to do it anyway, so whatever. Imagine I said, hey, I just want to thank you in advance for what's going to happen later on tonight, all right? I just want to thank you in advance. I'm going to claim it. Which means I could walk around and treat her any way I want, but because I thanked in advance, I'm still going to get it? Nope. Nope. No, no, no. No, no, no. And if we really believe that when God gave us Jesus, he gave us everything, what am I waiting to thank him for in advance from anyhow? I have everything he's ever going to give me in Christ. Why? It's manipulation. It's transaction. It's just words that we use to make ourselves feel better for not having what we want that we probably shouldn't have anyhow. I told you I was going to preach just a little bit today. Winnie the Pooh has something to say about this. Y'all can judge me, but I'm about to preach Winnie the Pooh pretty well right now. First of all, I watch this with my daughter now, and Winnie the Pooh is the most terrifying experience when you're an adult. What a horrible 100-acre wood that place is, where emo animals that are always upset and depressed, it's like a Zoloft commercial all the time, walking around constantly upset that Christopher Robin is not living with them in a tree. Like, guys, he's a human being, and he has, like, he has a job or something, even though he wears the same clothes every episode. This one episode, Christopher Robin went to the doctor. God forbid, right? And all the crazy demonic animals are like, he's never coming back. He's never coming back. I'm going to miss him. Like, yo, give, can, some of our relationships are like that. Yo, let him breathe, please. He'll come back. If you keep nagging him, he won't, but he'll. And Winnie the, so Piglet comes up to Pooh, to me, who's the most annoying of all of them. And Piglet, I'm not going to pretend to be Piglet, but Piglet says, why am I only your good friend, but Christopher Robin is your best friend? Shut up, Piglet. Like, (laughs) really? What? Winnie the Pooh shuts him down. Winnie the Pooh's shirt doesn't even fit. He's got no pants on ever. Why'd you put a shirt on? He says, Piglet, you're my good friend because we can do everything together. But Christopher Robin is my best friend because we can do nothing together. Now, Richard Rohr said this. When you can finally be bored with God, you've reached the highest level of intimacy. As Pentecostals, We're always trying to overcome something, always trying to break through something, always in a valley, always trying to climb a mountain, always defeating a giant, always this, always that. There's always like we're trying to fast something, pray for something, cycles of trying and failing, trying and failing. And our whole walk with God is so busy that we never just do nothing with him. 
if we ever get to the point, and this is Cain, where we feel like I just can't be, if we always need activity to define a relationship, there's no intimacy in that relationship. If we can't be bored, we don't have a great walk with the Lord. He should be our best friend because we can do nothing together. And I can sit with myself in boredom and not cave in on myself because I'm lost in the one who's redeeming all the things that would normally cave me in when there's no activity going on. All right, so the desire to know, the desire to know why one offering was better than the other. I spent so much time. I wrote the sermon this morning. I spent so much time trying to figure out why one offering was better than the other. Let me show you where God kicked me in my face. For five days, I came up with some really good answers. It says that Cain brought the fruit, but Abel brought a newborn lamb. So I'm like, oh, so Cain didn't bring first fruits. And the Holy Spirit's like, no. And I was like, I know, I know. When God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, he sacrificed an animal in order to clothe them with animal skins. So maybe Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel that the best offering you can bring is an animal because the death of an animal is what saved us. And Cain said, no, I'm going to bring fruit. That's clever. Then I heard this whispered to me. The desire to know why one offering is better than the other is the desire that murdered Abel. God is ambiguous because he's showing us that our incessant need to ask God what works is what causes rivalries among us. When I'm run by what I produce, I will assess you by what you produce. And if you don't produce like I produce, then you're going to be a threat to me. Maybe you have a family member who takes and takes and takes, and you give and give and give, and at some point that breaks Because you're so focused on what you're giving and what they're taking that now you want them eliminated. Should I make Winnie the Pooh jokes again? Like, everybody okay? God never rejects Cain in the story. He talks to him. He says, sin is crouching at the door. It hasn't gotten you yet. But because Cain was so wrapped up in what he produced that the critique of what he produced was felt like it was the rejection of him. When we are so wrapped up in our job, when we're so wrapped up in what we're producing in life, when our security and our identity is rooted in the kind of parents we are, how much money we make, how much we serve, in light of how much other people don't, any critique on our produce is a rejection of us. So Cain couldn't even hear God disciple him because the minute God said no to the offering, Cain said he was saying no to me. So now I'm going to find the one person he said yes to because if I can't have him, nobody can. Notice in the text, God talks to Cain and Cain's first response is to Abel. He never responds to God first. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain then spoke to Abel, his brother. Never responds to God. He's in his presence. 
He's hearing God talk to him in the midst of everything he's doing wrong. And here's what we know. Cain's response to this is what was true of Cain when he brought the offering in the first place. So there's no difference in God's mind between grain, fruit, and a lamb. Because read Leviticus and Exodus. God wants grain offerings, fruit offerings, and herd offerings. What Cain brought is just as good as what Abel brought. But how Cain brought it isn't. How he brought it. Why he brought it. When I'm rooted in my abilities and God goes and I'm not living in the favor or the circumstances or the outcomes that I feel I should be living in because of my abilities, those who are who I perceive to have less abilities or less produce or less production than me, they will become my rivals. They'll become my rivals and we will live constantly rivaling other people and we'll never be honest with the fact that it's really not the other person, it's the fact that I feel like they're outproducing me and God's not being fair. She can't have what I want. She's like this and I'm like this. Pause for Cain and Abel for a moment. Look at Jacob. In the womb, he wrestles with Esau. In life, he wrestles with his mom. Then he wrestles with his dad. Then he wrestles with Laban. Then he wrestles with Leah. Then he wrestles with Rachel. And then he's on his way back, and Esau's coming after 40 or 50 years. And in his mind, he's wrestling with Esau again. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. Everybody know this story? Esau's coming. And after years of wrestling with his brother, with his dad, with his mom, with his wives, with his wife's father, after years of wrestling with all of these things, he's now in the ultimate wrestling match of his life. Esau's coming, and it says that night, Jacob wrestled with God. Because God was showing him and us, you've never wrestled with Esau. You thought you were. You've never wrestled with your dad. You've never wrestled with Laban. You've never wrestled with those women. You're not wrestling with Esau right now. All of your wrestling has always been with me. You only wrestle with me. But until you realize that the battle for your heart is not between people, it's between me and you, you're always going to think you're wrestling with people. And you're going to impose on them the renewal that only I can give you. And when they can't give it to you, the disdain is going to grow. The disappointment is going to grow. The anger is going to grow because you're looking for your enemy to do for you what only I could do for you. Cain's issue was never with Abel. Cain just refused to believe that his issue was between him and God. Cain finally talks to God after he eliminates Abel. If we're not careful, as I said at the beginning, if we're not walking around knowing the voice of evil, we won't fully give ourselves to God until we perceive that we've gained control of our life. Cain doesn't ask God for mercy until he kills Abel. And then he says, now that I feel like I have some control here, okay, God, what were you saying? Maybe take it down from Bible stories and just say, on a simple level, like a very simple level, maybe we have trouble asking for forgiveness in a rivalry until the other person does first. I won't cave until I see the other person cave. 
I'm not moving towards them until they take one little baby step toward me. There's no way I'm going to be hospitable until they're hospitable. We have to hear the voice of greed and envy and jealousy going on in our lives. Otherwise, everything we give is just a transaction. It's not an offering. There was nothing wrong with what Cain offered. There was only something wrong with why and how he offered it. We want to know what was so good about Abel's offering. Why do we want to know that? Because like the rich young ruler, we want to say, what must I do to be saved? Jesus will never answer that question. Because the answer is not anything we can produce. It's the heart that we give to him or refuse to give to him. That's the only thing that matters. That's what matters in this story. And that's what matters in all the stories of brothers leading up to Jesus. In, in the lectionary text that Sheena read today, John 6, 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to make him king, by t- to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's the last thing I want to say. Jesus was willing to give everything until they wanted to possess him. The minute they were going to, now listen to this, he, he's supposed to be king, Yes? But the minute they were going to take him by force, he said, I can't be the kind of king I'm created to be if I'm possessed. It has to be gift. It has to be gift. So Jesus would rather freely die than forcibly be taken. We fight to have it be the other way around. Take me, possess me, do whatever you want to me, but bless me. That's the backwards lie that we fall for. We get abused in relationships. We get talked down to. We get condescended. We get worked to the bone. We get exhausted. We constantly live a thankless life because we put ourselves around people that are giving us what our carnal attitude wants. And we're willing to get manipulated and taken advantage of because our desire is for things and not for God. It works both ways. We manipulate and break people for the same reason that we allow ourselves to get manipulated and broken. If that's you, you hear me. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? This word means two things in the Hebrew, and they're complete opposites. The word keep means to protect or to possess. So when God says to Adam and Eve, work and keep the ground from which you were taken, that word means to protect. But the word keep can also mean possess. So you could say this. Cain couldn't be his brother's keeper because he was trying to keep his brother. I'll use the other words. Cain couldn't protect Abel because he was trying to possess Abel. Because Cain is rooted in, because people are defined for Cain by what they produce in light of what he's producing and how it works out between them, He can only take ownership of Abel. He can't let him be himself. Because how can God be with me in a contrary way when he's with him in such a loving way? Because we can't see critique as love if we're rooted in what our produce is. 
we can't ever learn. We will never even allow ourselves a moment of personal suspicion to be suspicious of ourselves. Because if I'm rooted in my production, if I'm rooted in the need to be active, I can't let God critique my activities. I can't let him critique my one year of pastoring. I can't let him critique any of that stuff because if it's not favorable, I'll feel rejected. And then I'll start to get mad at all of you. But think about it, though. If you are defined by how well your kids turn out, and they're not turning out great at the moment, you get mad at them. And it goes from being mad because of how they're living to being mad of how they're reflecting on you. And that goes for our job. It goes for our families. It goes for everything. Whatever you want to plug that formula into, it will work. St. Augustine said, our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in him. Whatever our hearts find their rest in, our talents, our abilities, our production, our offerings, how well we worship, how well we read the Bible, how well we do church, whatever it is, if our security and our rest is rooted in any of those things, our hearts will remain restless until they find their rest in him. We could fail at everything else. If our heart is rooted in Christ, we'll have rest. The cross says we no longer compete for God. Luke 23, two criminals hung on either side of Christ. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now listen to this. There's rivalry on the cross between people, and Jesus is in the middle of it like, yo, can I please die in peace for one second? Like I'm trying to die for you. Shh. And they're, first they're both yelling at Jesus in Mark's gospel. Then one of them has a change of heart and is rebuking the other one. And Jesus is like, kids, we'll turn this thing back around. I don't know what that means, but we will. Then one of the thieves says, you know what? We both deserve to be up here, but he doesn't. No more rivalry can exist. We think rivalry ends when you finally realize you're wrong. But rivalry ends when you and I both realize we both are. The minute we realize he doesn't deserve to be up there, and we do, we can't fight anymore. What are we going to fight about? What am I winning? Because we're all accused under the cross. There's no more rivalries. If you really believe what that thief said, that he doesn't deserve to be up here, but we do, Make the other thief any person in your life that you're rivaling, that you have contention with. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter the gap that may exist between your rightness and their wrongness is closed on the cross. There's no more gap. I might be a little bit more right than some of you, and some of you may be a little bit more right than me right now, but when you put us all up on the cross, that gap is shut. No gap. We're all wrong. And that's where, that's where rivalries go to die. This is why the cross says, listen to me, please, that God's nearness to someone 
doesn't mean his distance from me. Cain, let's just say it for lack of better words, Cain was wrong. Abel was right. And Abel was in the presence of God, and so was Cain. God talked to him. God opened him up. God showed up for him multiple times. God's nearness to Abel did not mean his distance from Cain. If you feel that you've done nothing but fail in your life, God's nearness to the person next to you right now does not mean his distance from you at all. He's as showing up for you as he is for anybody else. But we also need to know that God's nearness to me because of what I've gotten right does not mean his distance from you for what you might have gotten wrong. So we can't judge ourselves or the other. The cross puts us all under sin so that we can all be equally raised. This is why Jesus is the true and better Cain who doesn't just give the right offering but gives himself as the perfect offering so that he truly could be his brother's keeper. Jesus doesn't possess us. He woos us and protects us even when we're wrong. He dressed up like Cain on the cross in the likeness of sinful flesh. And instead of coming with the wrong offering, he came with the perfect one. And now when his blood cries out from the ground, it says, I'm protecting all of them. The ones who got it wrong and the ones who get it right. And so now with that blood on our lives, there's no one we should rival. There's no one we should possess. Just protect. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to come to the Lord's table. And what I want to do, if you want, I'll just stand here by myself if nobody wants to. I'm going to have some oil. I'm not dumping it on anybody. It's not going to get weird. I'm not going to fry anyone. I just want to touch some of it to your forehead if you feel you need the power of God to help break rivalries in your life. Just a quick moment. The oil doesn't do anything, but it symbolizes the power of God on our mind. It symbolizes where we need the anointing of God. We need to be the kind of people who can let go of rivalry. The world, in, in one of the prayers that we pray, it says, forgive us our trespasses so that the world can see the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. If we can't let go of rivalry, the world cannot see the knowledge of salvation to the extent that we break our rivalries, even if our rival doesn't. If the Yankees say to the Red Sox, we love you, but the Red Sox keep hating, so what? The Yankees are showing the power of God. <laughs> so if you're a Yankee, no. Um, if that's you and you're saying, look, I just, I, I want a symbolic touch. I'll just be here to pray a very quick prayer, one right after the other, and just put a, a dot of oil on your forehead so you leave here remembering that you don't just need to feel the power of God, you need it to transform your mind. And when you leave here 
and you see that rival or you hear about them or something reminds you of them, it's joy and the power of God that rushes into your heart and not anger, disappointment, and dread or fear. But imagine thinking about the person you're in the most contention with, the person who's the cause of your greatest disappointment in life. Imagine the thought of them pops into your head and you smell the rose of Sharon in your car and the, the bright and morning star rises in your heart and tongues come out of your mouth and praise and worship flows from the cracks that that person has caused. That's transformation that will turn the world upside down. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.